News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to find out more about this very bizarre story I was reading about in the last 24 hours. This is the story that links a woman in Quebec to what might have been an assassination attempt on U.S. President Donald Trump. What is going on with this? Joining us now is Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Now, I know the woman at the center of this investigation is making her first court appearance today. What do we know about this? Like, what's happening today? Yeah, you you described it best in terms of it really being a bizarre story with uh, a lot of questions still yet to be answered. We're going to wait and see if we get some of those details today. But late yesterday, sources confirmed that the woman arrested in this case, her name is Pascal Ferrier. Uh, we don't know a lot about about her, including details of her citizenship. Even that uh, seems to, investigators are still trying to uh, work out at last check. Uh, we know that she has a court appearance in person in Buffalo this afternoon uh, at four o'clock. So we'll see if any uh, documents are released at that point. Tell me more about these letters. Like, what do we know about the letters okay. at this point? So what we know is that one of these letters with this poison ricin, uh, and now ricin is derived from castor beads. It's very deadly. Uh, you need uh, apparently the amount the size of a pinhead in order to kill a human. Uh, and one of these letters was addressed uh, to the American president, sent to the White House, obviously intercepted before that point. We also know that a number of other letters were sent to law enforcement and detention centers in South Texas. We don't know a total number. We don't know if there were more sent elsewhere. As you can imagine, both RCMP and FBI are being very tight-lipped uh, about all this. Uh, but I mentioned uh, South Texas and the uh, sheriff of a community called Hidalgo County uh, in Texas tweeted yesterday that he was the recipient or the addressee of one of these letters, as well as three of his detention center staff in Hidalgo County. Uh, And I mention this because a woman with the same name and some other matching characteristics, uh, Pascal Ferrier, was arrested and faced charges in Hidalgo County, Texas in 2019 last year. So waiting to see if that's in fact the same Pascal Ferrier, uh, if that lends itself to any information about motive, uh, Mm -hmm. why these letters were sent there, but uh, that that is one of the questions yet to be answered. Okay, And and I know there was a pretty heavy police presence yesterday in this Montreal suburb. Was there a lot of RCMP connected here? Right. So from Hidalgo County, Texas to St. Hubert, Quebec, uh, and uh, an unusual day for for people in that community yesterday, RCMP, who are assisting the FBI in this case, moved in. They had a search warrant for an apartment, a unit in a building uh, in St. Hubert, and uh, they would not tell us what specifically they were looking for or whether they found ricin, but they did tell us that due to the highly toxic nature of ricin or another similar or another highly toxic uh, chemical. They were taking every precaution. They had units nearby the unit they were searching uh, evacuated. They also wouldn't say whether uh, Pascal Ferrier lived in that unit, but they did say that it was linked to her. That's as, as far uh, as they would go. And we saw officers uh, in hazmat suits, uh, wearing military fatigues, uh, heading inside that building yesterday. They said they would just be there for a couple of hours, and they were there uh, all afternoon waiting for an update um, on that about today. Uh, uh, and we also know that a highly secretive uh, Canadian uh, counterterrorism unit was on scene yesterday, a unit that deals specifically with uh, biological chemical threats, uh, was part of the response yesterday. Uh, so it's still waiting to see what, if anything, they found in that apartment, but they were there for a long time. All right, Abigail, thank you for the update. Thanks. Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, on this very bizarre story that links a Quebec woman uh, to what might have been an assassination attempt on U.S. President Donald Trump, but still so many questions, as Abigail pointed out there. There is an appearance coming up in court today. Hopefully there will be more answers at that point. We'll have that information for you in the news. Now, there are many, many businesses that have stayed afloat in the last six months because of the emergency wage subsidy program that gets paid to employers, helps them keep employees on the payroll. Now, it's not cheap. Program costs about $7 billion every month. 
But are there shortcomings to this? Well, that is what Michael Smart has to say. He is a University of Toronto economics professor and has written a piece about this, joins us now to talk more about it. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Cindy. So you wanted to point out that, you know, there's this, this huge program that we're spending a ton, ton of money on, but is that money being well spent? Well, we need to do something. The Canadian government's got to do something in this situation. They acted in a hurry back in March when the scale of this problem became clear. We've got to give credit to our leaders for acting, but we now have to assess uh, where we're at and where we're going. In terms of this program, it does make sense to help out workers to stay with their businesses, help the businesses meet their payrolls in the short run, because otherwise if workers get laid off, if businesses can't meet those payrolls, then um, those workers would be unemployed and we're all in trouble. So that makes sense. But at the current scale, it's just not a cost-effective program. As you said, Simi, it costs about $7 billion a month. The estimates are it will be $70 billion this year. You know, these numbers are so high, I think it's hard for us to kind of imagine what we're talking about. One way to put that is the federal government could have financed 500 kilometers of SkyTrain or similar uh, rail systems around the country for what they're paying for this program this year. Now, where's the money going? It's not going to workers. It's not going to laid off workers. It's going to businesses. Now, businesses are going to use those funds uh, to uh, maintain their payroll in some cases. But a lot of that money, in fact, is just padding the bottom lines of the businesses. Now, businesses, some businesses are in big trouble. We do have to help them. But this program is not a cost-effective way to do it. So are you saying that there's not enough of a means test for this program? We, I, I think that's a good way to put it. We would like this program to be targeted to the workers who are laid off or who might be laid off in the absence of the program. But instead, it goes to, in the Canadian way of doing this, it goes to every worker, to every company that has experienced any revenue loss this year. And that's just too wide a net. That's just a, a splatter approach, a better targeted program, either going where the funds are going directly to laid off workers or that uh, built in some some checks to make sure that businesses really were hiring back all those workers and the money was going where it needed to be would be much more cost effective. Right. Is it possible, though, that I think originally it was only supposed to run for six weeks or something, and now here we are six months later. Are you hoping to hear that they might make some course corrections on this with the throne speech tomorrow? Well, you know, this could go either way. We've seen a lot of pressure from business groups over the last two or three weeks uh, not only to keep the program, but to expand it. The government has actually scaled it back in certain ways starting in September. Some businesses are not happy about that. I'd point out this. The program started off, like you said, as a short-term measure, mm-hmm. and it was only for businesses that experienced a big revenue loss. Now, any business has less revenue than it had last year is eligible for at least some subsidies. So, you know, they talk uh, in the military about scope creep or mission creep. That happens in government, too. This program may well have served its purpose, and it should be shut down. But frankly, Simi, I don't expect that's going to happen uh, in the throne speech or soon after. Um, uh, if anything, this program might expand again if, uh, if Canadians don't pay attention. So I guess the problem there is, is the government just really afraid of what the unemployment numbers might be if they don't do this? Well, we should all be concerned about unemployment, yeah. and we should, be, we should be concerned about getting government spending going in the right directions, to make sure that we're, we stay on the, on the path to recovery. Um, but the impacts of this program on, on unemployment are likely very small. We don't have good evidence yet for Canada, but people have looked at a similar program that existed in the United States but got shut down. That program had a very small impact on, on employment. There's no reason to think the Canadian program is better run than the similar U.S. program that they ran for five months and then shut down. Um, so... You know, we got to be ready to help unemployed workers if they are laid off, but we don't have to be uh, shoveling the cash out the door to every business in the country. Not every business, to be honest, but a lot of business. Well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. All right, Michael, thank you for your time. My pleasure. It's Michael Smart. He's a professor of economics at the University of Toronto, co-director at Finances of the Nation. He's written a think piece on the emergency wage subsidy program. It's costing a lot of money, $7 billion every month. But as Michael also pointed out, there is no doubt that it has saved countless numbers of jobs in the six months that it has been in operation. It was only intended, though, for about six weeks. I seem to remember when it was first launched. Everything was supposed to end at the end of June, beginning of July. But of course, this whole thing dragged on. So is it time to completely retool and overhaul the emergency wage subsidy program? 
I'd love to hear from business owners on this. If there's anybody out there who has used that program, how necessary is it? Or can it be kind of tinkered with and scaled back given the amount of money that is being spent on it? What would be better for businesses at this point? You can send me your thoughts, simi at cknw.com. A lot of debate, I think, going on online about the whole idea of voting during a pandemic. We're going to talk more about that now with the help of our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, lots of controversy around this one. I think that some people may have been surprised when it was called yesterday and others going, okay, we've been waiting for this based on all the signs that the government has been sending us for the last few days or few weeks even. So here we are today wondering how this whole thing is going to work. I think there's a couple of schools of thought on this. I notice that, you know, there's the people who are just absolutely freaked out by this saying, how can we possibly do this safely? And then there are other people who say, well, listen, do you go to the grocery store? Are you going to a restaurant? Are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Like, if we can do those things safely, then yes, we can We can vote safely. Yeah, and Elections BC, I know that they are trying to work with Dr. Bonnie Henry to come up with a safe plan for how voting is going to work. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that later this morning. Elections BC also released a statement yesterday saying, you know, that they want to ensure, and this is a quote, that voters don't have to choose between safeguarding their health and exercising their right to vote. So essentially that means that there's two ways now that that you'll be able to vote or be encouraged to Mm -hmm. vote. And one of those is going to be in person. And of course, things are going to look a little bit different at the polling station. There's going to be some protective measures in place. And then the other way is mail-in voting, which they're also encouraging you to consider. Now, I think it's also important to note, though, that Horgan, he said that he did not consult with Dr. Bonnie Henry on whether or not he should be triggering an election. He said, and again, a a quote from yesterday, he said, the election, of course, was not an issue that I needed to raise with her. But he did say that Dr. Henry has been working with Elections BC to try to make sure that if there is an election, which now right. we know there's going to be, it will be as safe as possible. Right. And so they're going to hold a briefing. Elections BC is at nine o'clock this morning to let everybody know. I'm a big fan of advanced voting. You know, I like to mm. get it out of the way, way in advance before election day. So they are offering up seven days of advanced voting. That's up from six that we had in the last election. And I guess, Nikki, though, what we're not going to get this time is our sticker that said I voted. I love getting that sticker. I wasn't a fan of getting that what? sticker. <laughs> I don't like I, what? Nah, it was it was just a waste. It's a it's a waste. It just becomes garbage. I don't no, I don't like those stickers and no. gimmicky kind of little things like that. Here's and the everybody thing. just, wow, just no, <laughs> Okay. No, no. Let me just tell you why they're valuable. Okay. It, they were super valuable to me for because I always used to when my kids were little, which as you know, they're not now. Uh, I always took my kids with me when I voted because I wanted them to see that this is what you're supposed to do. This is, you know, this is how you do this. This is not a big deal. Make this your habit when you get older, which they have. Uh, But the stickers were great. Great for telling the kids, this is fun. See, you vote and then you get a sticker. And they thought that was a really big deal. So I guess I'm kind of fond of the sticker myself. Okay, okay. I definitely see your point of view for the kids. It's very for the kids. Yes, sweet. for the kids. But if I have to see one more person on social media wearing their I voted Aww, sticker and bragging about it, killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been made bitter by social media. That's all. Oh silly. well, who hasn't? Don't get <laughs> well, me started. Yeah, that's also uh, true, so, yeah. what other things do we need to know? Like, are they telling us to like? What about bringing your pens and things? Like, are, are they going to have them for us? Should we bring our own if you don't want to use one of theirs? You know what's funny, Simi, is that I thought of you when I when I read this suggestion Why? because they said <laughs> because they said consider bringing your own pen or pencil to the polling station. And I thought, geez, that's something I'd never thought of before. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's probably something that Simi Sarah already does anyways. <laughs> is bring a pen or pencil? If anyone that I know already does this, it's going to be you. <laughs> well, I'm one of those people who always has like three pens in her bag, so yeah. that's not a problem for me to tackle that. <laughs> And I'm sure that there are people out there who say, yeah, you know, I've actually been doing this for years anyways. I always keep a few pens in my purse too. So yeah, of course, you know, there's going to be people who this is quite an easy transition for. There's going to be some of the stuff at these polling stations too that of course you can expect. Lots of physical distancing, the directional arrows on floors that you see commonly in grocery stores or, you know, other places of business. I've come around on this. In the beginning, I was like, oh, no, I'm not sure about this. But I've I've actually read a lot of those comments online, and I think people have an excellent point when I see people waiting in line for, you know, Tim Hortons socially distanced or at the McDonald's socially distanced or at the grocery store, or at the drugstore, whatever. And I think, you know what, if we can wait in those lines 
and socially distance, then yeah, we can wait in line, socially distance and vote too. Yeah, I do see the counter argument, though, that we shouldn't be encouraging people to put themselves in scenarios where they need to line up and where they need to be going out, especially if we're trying to. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's certainly true. But if we're trying to, you know, ramp down the amount of sort of exposure people have to each other, this certainly isn't accomplishing that measure. But your other option is to do a mail-in ballot. So, you know, if you really don't want to go and stand in that lineup, there is the mail-in ballot option as well. You just have to let the government know that you want, you have to request a voting package. And you can do that at elections.bc.ca's website, or you can also give them a call as well. And you can find all that information online. And then the vote by mail package will be mailed out to you with instructions on how you can complete it, and then on how you can send it back to Elections BC as well. Okay, and I know the other concern is where the build, like what the buildings are going to be. Uh, BCTF doesn't want schools to be used. I can imagine that would be a bit tricky because schools are generally used uh, for voting. And in my neighborhood, I usually go, there's like a church that gets used mm-hmm. and a community center that gets used. So well, maybe there can be some compromise on that one. Yeah, and you know, maybe they can come up with something really creative as well. I, I, look, I don't know what the rules are around this, but I do know that there's lots of businesses out there that are struggling right now. Maybe the government kicks some of these businesses a little bit of cash for them to close for the day, turn themselves into a polling station, especially you know restaurants that aren't doing well right now that have been affected by these measures or other types of businesses who've really been struggling. And maybe you know there's some kind of partnership they can come up with there in order to spread people out even further and create sort of smaller polling stations, more smaller polling stations that people can go to. But yeah, the BCTF has been adamant. They do not want the polling stations to be at schools, which will certainly be a departure from what an election typically looks like in the past. You know, when I remember voting in the last election, I walk down to the local school, you go into the gymnasium, you think to yourself, oh my God, I haven't been into a school gymnasium in years. This is giving me weird flashbacks. flashbacks. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And then, you know, you go and you mark your ballot with the pen that you borrowed from them, which now in hindsight is covered. In germs. I'll give you and one. I'll give you one, Nikki. I'll give you a brand new pen. How about that? Thank you. Sammy. I'll wipe it down with the wipes <laughs> yeah, that we we'll have, have here sanitizer. at work. I'll make sure you, I'll take care of that for sure. Um, thanks for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the election and really about all of the information, the news, and yes, in some cases, misinformation that is going to be coming your way right up until October 24th and probably beyond. You're going to be bombarded with information, essentially, and news about the election. But what should you look for, right? What should you stay away from to make sure you're getting the best information, the correct information, in order to be able to make some kind of an informed decision at the polling station. Well, we're going to take a run at this. I know it's a difficult and loaded question, but we thought, let's talk a little bit more about it. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Maida Tabawada, who's a professor of linguistics at Simon Fraser University, to try to gain some tips on how to be a savvy consumer of election news. In this upcoming BC election, How much of a concern do you think that fake news is going to be here? I think fake news is a real concern uh, and not just the completely fabricated stories that uh, most informed uh, readers can tell are are fake, uh, but uh, misinformation in general or stories with a clear bias um, that it's sometimes hard to tell where they're coming from and, and what interests are behind those stories. So my advice to voters and to to news readers is to always question the source and to always question what the article is trying to do, whether it's trying to inform or to persuade. And expanding on that point, savvy consumers of media should look not just at that single article, but the body of work that is being produced by a news outlet and examining is there balance in their coverage as a whole? So yes, absolutely. Balance is important. It's important to get your news uh, from a variety of sources, to, to have a healthy news diet, um, because news organizations have their own biases and reporters have their own biases. So the, the more uh, uh, different types of information that you consume, the more informed you'll be. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's It's been described since the um, advent of newspapers that if you wanted to be well informed, you would have to you would have to read from different sources. 
Now, when it comes to how we look at news online, as an expert, I'm sure that you know there are many, many, many red flags when it comes to news on the internet, definitely depending on the source. What red flags should people be looking out for? Yes, uh, red flags include, uh, you know, is this article trying to persuade me of something? Is this uh, trying to get me to act in a certain uh, direction? Uh, that's usually a red flag. Um, an article that doesn't quote the original source, if they're describing what a politician said, for instance, um, are they using quotes with with quotation marks around them or are they interpreting what the person said those are typical red flags um, articles that only uh, talk about one aspect of the news without putting it in context are often articles that have a bias if not misinformation right and i know that one of the strangest places to end up after reading an article is down at the very bottom in the comment section Should people be cautious when they are reading or even tempted to participate in the comment section of an online article, even if that article is from a credible source? Comments are fascinating. My lab has been studying comments for four or five years now, and we've collected a lot of uh, comments from different organizations. Um, And I became interested in them because I was reading them myself. we know that there can be toxic and abusive content in comments, uh, but there's also lots of thoughtful, insightful discussions from different points of view. I advise people to uh, to read news from different organizations. I also advise them to read comments on those news from different organizations, especially now in a, in a pandemic. We are not talking to our neighbors as much. We're not talking to different types of people people. Um, And comments uh, are a place where you can gather uh, different information and different points of view. Uh, You may disagree, but it's always good to know what somebody else is thinking. And it's always good to be aware that there are different points of view that can inform other people's decisions and that can help you make your own decisions. And I want to ask you about gender balance in news coverage as well, specifically election coverage, because I know that this is an area of expertise for you. Yeah, we have been measuring the number of men and women quoted in mainstream and uh, Canadian news organizations. Um, and we have a, an online dashboard, the Gender Gap Tracker, that tracks this daily. The news is not good. Uh, there is about a three to one ratio of men to women quoted in Canadian news. And uh, I urge you and anyone uh, listening to try and improve that. We're going to be hearing a lot from leaders of the various political parties, and many of those leaders are men, so we'll hear a lot uh, from men. Um, But I think it's important to have a representation of different voices uh, in the news, not just uh, uh, gender uh, uh, diversity, but other forms of diversity. Well, Maida, thank you so much. It has been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. You are very welcome. This is great. We are not at the end of COVID-19. We're at the beginning. This pandemic will be with us for a year or more, and that's why I believe we need to have an election now. That is NDP leader John Horgan yesterday announcing the start of this election campaign. But already we know it has not been smooth sailing, particularly for the NDP and in some of their nomination contests. We wanted to talk more about that. Our Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun's got a great piece about this in the paper this morning, and he joins us now. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Okay, so what what ha- what happened here in Stikin? Right. Well, the NDP have a long policy that they've had in place at least the last couple of elections that say when you have a male incumbent, so a male MLA who chooses to retire, you need to, as a party, find either a female candidate or an equity-seeking candidate, as they call it. So that could be a member of a of a someone with a disability or a member of a minority group uh, or a First Nations candidate. Uh, someone who is not uh, essentially what the NDP is looking for here is someone who's not an old white uh, dude to replace the previous old white person. That is a policy that has caused a lot of different headaches for the party over the years because people have tried to find a way around it. Right. And it uh, it has turned into a bit of an issue. And again, in Stikine, um it has reared its head. So what's 
really going on here, if you boil it all down, is Premier John Horgan wants the former federal NDP MP Nathan Cullen to be the candidate up there to replace his fourth minister, Doug Donaldson. And in order to accomplish this, the party um, has had to break the equity rule. And uh, <laughs> it has had to contort itself into all sorts of positions, like a pretzel, to pretend that it isn't actually doing this. Well, it is doing it, and pretend it's not influencing this race. Because the Democrats, they sort of pride themselves on having their local uh, candidacies be decided by members, much more than the Liberal Party does. The, you know, the NDP put the the um, high emphasis on democracy. So it's been a mess, essentially. Once Doug Donaldson announced that he was retiring, the riding association up there said they went out and canvassed some 15 prospective candidates, many being First Nations women, and they couldn't find someone who wanted to run. So, they, But they ignored the fact that someone had declared they wanted to run, and that was a, a woman named Anita McPhee, who's a member of the Taltan Nation. Uh, and so they just kind of tried to ignore her for a little bit. Nathan Cullen announces his candidacy. Um, Ms. McPhee announces her candidacy and that she's applied on Friday. Uh, <laughs> the part We all start debating this on Twitter. What's going on here? And, and you can tell. You know exactly what's going to happen here is the party is going to uh, find a technicality to hang right. this up on. And they did. They said, oh, actually, well, uh, Ms. McPhee, you don't have, you're missing a couple signatures from your uh, supporters in your application, which, in a normal circumstance, is something the party could fix in about four seconds. But in her case, they leave her application sitting there Friday night all the way until Monday morning. And, and that's only then when the party says it's able to solve the problem. And what happens Monday morning is there's an election call. And so as this debate is kind of brewing and raging, what's going on here? Uh, last night, the NDP puts out its official list and says, oh, by the way, Nathan Cullen uh, is our candidate. Huh. Uh, so, so it is, I think, a reminder for any New Democrats who happen to be up on a very high perch, yes. uh, preaching down to the rest of the other parties about how this is done, that they are as guilty as, um, as anyone else. And when the leader wants a candidate, when the leader wants someone for sure, you just kind of um, quietly put the rule book aside uh, in order to get what the leader wants. And is it true that she, Anita McPhee, then found out about this through the media, that they didn't, like, the NDP constituency didn't even tell her? No. Well, I mean, the NDP, uh, their line is, well, we sent her an email. But she spent the weekend trying to get a hold of Craig Keating, the NDP president, for whom this entire debacle lies uh, squarely at his feet. Uh, he's had a lot of time to figure out this thing out, and everyone knew Nathan Cullen was interested in running. He lives in Smithers, and yet the party sort of flummoxed this right up until the last minute and all the way through. So she was trying to get a hold of people, and she didn't find out until I tweeted it yesterday. The party put a statement out saying, uh, yeah, sorry about that, but um, we're going with Nathan Cullen, uh, and uh, this is the way it is due to our technicalities and various other um, totally and completely insurmountable object, you know, problems that the party takes. simply just can't understand how to get over. Uh, and so she found out on Twitter and said, I've been trying to get a hold of Mr. Keating since last night. And no surprise there, he, he uh, did not want to take her call. So it's a bit of an embarrassment for yeah. the Democrats. It's a, it's a reminder that, um, you know, when it comes down to, uh, <laughs> when it comes down to winning, uh, the NDP are as guilty as the rest of the parties, that the ends can uh, justify their means. And, and uh, there's a lot of means in, in play here. It's really surprising, though, Rob, that this happened, I think, because it seems like everybody had predicting this ever since Nathan Cullen said that he was resigning his seat federally. Everybody said, oh, he's going to be the candidate there. How could they have messed it up when they knew for so long that he was going to be the candidate there? Yeah, well, I think there was some discussions about maybe he could run elsewhere. Uh, and I think the party would have preferred he was actually running in Skeena against uh, liberal incumbent Ellis Ross. But that didn't happen, and Nathan Cullen has his family in Smithers, and that's where he wants to be. And so as soon as that became the situation, it was it was pretty much a matter of the party finding a way to artfully break its own rules. And it had come up with what it thought was a really clever way to do this, which is if it covers its eyes and ears and doesn't <laughs> find any other candidates of any other type, right. and Mr. Cullen is the only one left, how convenient. And then he can be acclaimed outside of the rules. And that would have worked, I guess, if they had managed to pressure 
missing its feet not to run, which I, I'm sure there was a concerted effort to do that. But she did. And then it became a matter of undermining her application. And then when that didn't happen, it became a matter of sort of drawing the game out. Until, right. uh, and, and look, the party has a lot of control over its candidates. And we see problems in uh, Vancouver Hastings with a, not necessarily problems, but a, a very um, you know tight race for the candidacy in that riding. We're going to see it in other ridings, especially places where if you win the nomination for the NDP, you probably have won the seat. Right. Uh, and you're probably the MLA. And so it, it takes on a, a big importance, and that's when the rules tend to fly out the window. Happens all the time, I know, but it always never ceases to uh, surprise me when it does. Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. The NDP in calling this election have kind of surprised everybody, and there's an opportunity to make the election uh, an issue over the pandemic and whether there should be an election at all. That is strategist Mike McDonald talking to our Jill Bennett yesterday about the path forward for the parties that are running against the NDP in this election. And that, of course, includes BC Liberal Party and the leader, Andrew Wilkinson, who joins us now to talk more about their election campaign, which officially kicked off yesterday as well. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Simi. Is your party ready for this election? Oh, absolutely. I'm down in the party... uh center right now and we've got uh, extensive video links and we've got all the necessary technical setup Uh, this came as a bit of a surprise yesterday but we had anticipated it last week and made preparations and off we go we're ready to roll okay so where are you at in terms of getting candidates in place and having that process move forward we appointed i believe 15 yesterday and they're about 30 to go and that will be falling into place this week and what about an election platform Uh, That is already done, and we're going to be rolling that out carefully in the days to come. We're going to provide some excitement in the first week to get people interested and engaged starting tomorrow. Okay. What do you think are the priorities for people in this election campaign right now for people in B.C.? Well, I think we have to start off from the point that you were making earlier, that this is a totally unnecessary election. This is done for one reason, which is to suit the uh, career of John Horgan. British Columbians don't want this. The Greens didn't want this. They had stable government for a year to come. The NDP actually passed a law saying the election would be in October of 2021. But here we are. John Horgan broke his promise to the Greens, broke the law that he passed, and it's all for his benefit. But once we get through that, we're going to have to start talking about what this election's uh, focused on, Mm -hmm. which is the issue of where we go from the pandemic. We will make it through the pandemic But B.C. desperately needs a plan to secure our province's future. We're in a deep economic crisis. It's threatening the livelihoods of far too many British Columbians. And now more than ever, we need some strong, disciplined, competent leadership, which is what I'm offering. And how do we do that then? You talk about economic recovery from the pandemic. What do you think B.C. needs to do to make that happen? We're going to be talking about a number of factors here. First of all, getting more people back to work. Secondly, growing the economy, attracting investment. Thirdly, how to make it easier for mums and dads to work while raising a family. We're going to have some exciting things to say there. Uh, We've got to deal with this issue of the terrible toll of drug addiction in our society right now. You know, I'm a medical doctor by training and have some insights there that I think people will find helpful. And there's this looming issue that none of us wanted to hear about and none of us expected in the last few months of this vicious wave of violence that's coming through the lower mainland and also starting to be seen around the province in terms of property crime and random stabbings. I mean, this is the sort of thing that people say, this is not right. This is not acceptable. We have to deal with that. So we're going to have things to say about that too. We're going to talk about housing because it's still a big issue in British Columbia in spite of the efforts of the NDP. Housing prices are at an all-time high in the lower mainland. That's not good enough. So it's talking about putting together a plan for a brighter future, a place to go to, an exciting uh, British Columbia that all of us can be looking forward to, rather than the kind of doom and gloom that we're facing right now. You talk- and let's make no mistake, we're in a big, big pit right now. You talked about getting parents back to work. Now, does that involve providing child care for them? The Horgan government has experimented with you know, subsidized child care. What is your party's take on that? We uh, will have interesting things to say that about that in the next few days. Uh, we've got quite a, an idea of how to make childcare easier for parents and more accessible. And that's going to be part of our program because I think all of us have realized that getting working parents back to work involves quality daycare. 
And we're now in this kind of tailspin saying, well, we can't get the childcare going. We can't get back to work. The parents are home with the kids. So how can the parents go to work? It's just a circular argument. And a lot of people are feeling this pressure, and we want to address that. You alluded to the opioid overdose epidemic as well, which has been the original public health emergency here in B.C. What would you do to stem that awful tide? I've been saying for three years now that we need to have a pathway to get people off drugs. The sole focus under the NDP has been on harm reduction. That's a necessary step, but it's not the only step. And we have to think of this in terms of if your sister or daughter or mother were sleeping in a doorway in Prince George in minus two weather, you think, is that okay? No, it's not okay. We need to do what we can to get people off drugs and lead a more meaningful life. So are you talking about expanding rehabilitation, expanding those opportunities? We'll be talking in some detail about the four pillars, which seems to have been forgotten by the NDP, treatment, and uh, prevention are important factors in this, and we'll be talking about that in some detail. And what about the homeless problem? Obviously, we've seen a huge increase in that as well. That's all over the province, not just in Metro Vancouver. Will that be addressed? Yes, and I think all of us are starting to realize, what is the root cause of this? And homelessness, I think we have a vague perception of it, and it's often tied in people's minds to addiction. But we've got to back that off and say, so how many of these people are actually just running out of money? And I'll tell you, I go for a bike ride every morning. And one of the parks near where I live, there's a growing collection of motor vehicles that park there all night. One has Ontario plates. A couple of them are old motor homes. These are people who are down their locker running out of money. And they are homeless, quite obviously, but they've got uh, enough uh, to still keep going to pay for some auto insurance, for some gasoline. There's a whole other layer of homelessness that's related to addiction. And we have to start to find the causes of homelessness and address them rather than just say this is a terrible problem and chase them out of the park. It's been said, Mr. Wilkinson, that people haven't had as much of a chance to get to know you, uh, you know, because of the pandemic as well. So what do you want voters to know about you? Well, I think what the challenge is with this COVID campaign, if we can call it that, is to make the contact with people. There won't be any rallies. There won't be any large meetings. Uh, Going down the main streets is pretty difficult, if not impossible. And so the challenge is for me to get across the message. I've been involved in public life for a good long time. I've been the Minister of Advanced Education, supporting 435,000 students in the system through our 25 public institutions, a record I'm very proud of of what we did there. This is a party that is dedicated to opportunity. We're a party that wants people to feel that hope and that spring in their step, that chance to get ahead, that this is a place that they can fulfill their dreams. You know, British Columbia is a fantastic place. It's a remarkable landscape. We'll be talking about that too. And it's the kind of place where you think, if it doesn't work here, where will it work? And we've had a very strong record in this province since World War II of prosperity and growth. And the concern is that people are now starting to lose that dream, to lose that hope. And we will do everything we can to restore that. That's what I'm about. You know, came to Canada at age four, grew up in Kamloops, paper routes, worked pumped gas, all that stuff to get through high school, paid entirely my own way through university. Was fortunate enough to become both a doctor and a lawyer and uh, have worked in the civil service as well as taking elected office. So it's my job for people to get to know me. And I count upon people like you, Simi, to provide those opportunities. Well, the BC Liberals were in power for a long time in this province. Do you think that people still connect your party today with what happened when they were in government? Do you think people have moved beyond that? Well, we have to look to the future. I mean, this pandemic has been a huge break. and It's like a big circuit breaker in our society this year. A lot of things have changed. And if you work in the airline industry, you're petrified about whether they're ever going to work again. The scenario from 2007 or 2012 seems like 100 years ago. So we have to talk prospectively, talk about where we're going, talk about where our society needs to be and how we can get ourselves out of this tailspin. We're not unique, but we're concerned that the NDP's approach has been pretty trivial, really, in terms of getting people back to work and and creating that kind of hope. We just have to look at the tourism industry where 130,000 people have lost their jobs and there's really no substantive program from the NDP to get them back to work. I'm sure we're going to be talking to you more in the weeks ahead. Thank you for your time this morning. Yeah, I appreciate your time, and I'm sure we'll spend more time together.
We will. That is Andrew Wilkinson, B.C. Liberal leader on officially day one, the full day one of the election campaign, trying to get your vote. My opinion is I could argue it either way, and I'm not and I will not judge him whether he does or he does not, because I think he has a very difficult decision to make. That is former Green Party leader Andrew Weaver speaking with Mike Smith just before the election was called by NDP leader John Horgan. Now, of course, Andrew Weaver represents the past of the BC Green Party. This is going to be their first election in a while without him at the helm. The new leader, of course, is Sonia Furstenau, who joins us now to talk about what an eventful couple of weeks she has had on the job. Uh, Good morning and thank you for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Boy, they did, you didn't even get any kind of respite, right, from the moment that you have gotten this job. You know, it's a good thing I was a, a middle-distance runner when I was a teenager because I had to learn about that, you know, keep going even when it feels hard. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I've got the endurance. <laughs> okay, so here we are with an election that I know the last time we talked to you, you said you were opposed to. And you, did you make those feelings known to the NDP leader? Yeah, absolutely. I met with him on Friday. We had a long discussion. I made it really clear that Adam and I are committed to stability and that we've provided stability in government for three years and provided a lot of good outcomes for the people of British Columbia by working together. And I made the case very clearly and very strongly that uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, when we're seeing our COVID numbers rising at the rate they are, when we're having teachers file an application because they don't feel safe in their workplace, when we have parents worried about their kids back at school, and when we have the kind of financial insecurity that people are feeling right now, whether they're worried about losing their job or finding a job or paying rent or paying their mortgage, or if they're a small business, how are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to keep their employees? There are a lot of things that we need to be focusing our attention on right now, and an election didn't need to be one of them. And that that was the case I made. We also uh, identified a lot of uh, things that we could have worked on together for the next year that would have been really a, a, a bold uh, kind of agenda for the province. Um, but he chose instead to go to an unnecessary election. Is the Green Party ready for this election? We are moving very quickly, and uh, it's it, yesterday, I have to say, was uh, a very exciting day on a lot of fronts. We had um, nearly record levels of donations come into our party yesterday without asking. Uh, so that's an indication of how the public is feeling right now, that they want to support a party that actually puts the public interest and people first. Uh, we had a number of... Uh, amazing candidates who were already had been working and, and preparing um, just hit the ground running. We're going to be introducing some pretty exciting and, and terrific candidates. I'm really excited about uh, the Lower Mainland slate that's coming forward. Uh, and so we've hit the ground running. Everybody is going at full speed. And it's, uh, it's exciting because we are offering an alternative to the kinds of politics in British Columbia that have dominated for way too long, where calculations like this, like the one that John Horgan made yesterday, where his political and party fortunes came ahead of the people, uh, we can get beyond that. We can move into a different era of politics in BC. Will your party be running candidates in all of the writings? We're going to run a province-wide campaign, and we are reaching out to people, uh, and they are reaching out to us quite amazingly from all over the province, and that's uh, that's our focus. And we're going to be running a campaign that presents a, a, a true alternative. It focuses on people, focuses on on cost of living, on how do we create communities and neighborhoods and regions that feel safe and secure? How do we ensure we have strong, thriving local economies? And that really depends on small businesses, medium-sized businesses. We could get our manufacturing sector up and running. We need to invest in education, early childhood education. We have to recognize that instead of exporting raw resources from British Columbia, we should be exporting our genius, our innovation, our ability to to look at the, the new economy, the high-tech sector, advanced education, training. We could be developing, we could be leaders on geothermal energy and, and have a whole research center up in northwest BC that sits on a abundance of geothermal energy. It, it's, it's, we've lacked imagination 
in our political yeah. leaders for so long. And, and I, I have no shortage of imagination and vision for a future in which the new normals stop being worse than the last normal. When will we see the BC Green Party election platform? Uh, it's coming together very quickly, obviously, and uh, we will be putting that out in the coming, I expect, uh, in the coming days and weeks. Um, but, it, you know, people should know where we stand and where we stood uh, since 2017. Our platform was really focused on people, on education, on innovation. Um, because of the Greens being in the legislature, we have Clean BC, which really is a, a roadmap out of um, you mentioned COVID. you did also mention things that you wanted to work on in the spring if there hadn't been an election. Can you give us a quick idea of what that was? We could have been looking, for example, at how to get a, a massive retrofitting program up and running in BC we, so that there would be uh, jobs and opportunity in every community, but also uh, at the same time working on how to re- reduce our emissions. Uh, we could have been looking at getting young people to work, restoring uh, natural environments, getting the fuel load out of our forests, uh, making sure that uh, our ecosystems are able to provide us with clean water. We should really be looking at investing heavily into education at this point. Rather than cramming a health emergency into an old framework, we should say this is the moment we build a new framework. And the one thing that I would say, you know, really distinguishes us, and there are many things, but but we are not going to be a party that continues to uh, subsidize the fossil fuel industry, uh, subsidize fracking in this province. The the NDP and the Liberals have uh, have been the parties that are willing to subsidize fossil fuels at a time when we are in a climate emergency in the world. We are not going to do that. Uh, We are recognizing that we have to invest in the economy, the future, the energy, the clean energy that we need to be building right now so that okay. our children and their children can have a clean energy future. Thank you very much for your time. I know we'll be talking to you again. Thanks, Simi. Always great to chat with you. There are a lot of things that we need to be focusing our attention on right now, and an election didn't need to be one of them. That is Green Party leader Sonia know She spoke with us about half an hour ago about how she felt about this election, like it or not, we have one. So today, on the first full day of this provincial election campaign, we are talking to all three of the major parties. We know that one of the big reasons why a lot of us out here didn't want an election was because of concerns over the COVID-19 pandemic. Hey, we're still in this, right? Watching over the healthcare system is a huge job that has now been interrupted by this campaign. Now, normally, Adrian Dix would be looking after all of that if there were no election call, but of course, that isn't necessarily happening now. The NDP MLA and candidate joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Do you have any concerns about hitting the campaign trail at this time with all of this going on? Oh, I'm uh, still working hard on the COVID-19 file. As you know, I won't be part of the briefings, which have become part of um, part of many people's lives uh, in BC. Because I don't think it would be fair in an election campaign for me to be on television uh, for 45 minutes at a time when other candidates don't have that opportunity. So I won't be doing that. But every day I'll be working on COVID-19 as well, and uh, the work continues. I think what makes our response so strong on COVID-19, and we announced this two weeks ago, was a significant plan that looks ahead to the coming months on immunization, on PPE, on all the issues that are very important in responding to COVID-19. And we've put that in place uh, by working pretty much seven days a week for the last eight months. And I'm proud of the record of the government. I'm proud of the premier for leading that government. Are you comfortable with the idea of people going to the polls right now? Well, I I think we in BC have done this a couple of times recently. Uh, There's going to be a plan laid out by the chief electoral officer, I believe, today that's been developed in consultation with public health. In the last uh, seven years, we've had two major referendums by mail-in ballots. I expect hundreds of thousands of people to be getting mail-in ballots. It's easy to do. Uh, I encourage them to do it. I did it yesterday, ordered mine, and... uh, uh, and uh, we're going to be able to, everyone's going to be able to have the opportunity to vote and vote safely. The parties are going to have to campaign differently in this election because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But okay, I think it's something that I said, I think virtually every day uh, since January, that this pandemic is going to be with us, not for days or weeks or months, but for years. It's going to require a government to plan out and put things in place 
for years, both on the healthcare side and the economy side. And I think it's reasonable for people having a chance to pass judgment on that, who they'd like to do that for the next uh, four years. And uh, so uh, there's going to be a COVID-19 election. There was going to be. We're going to have it now. We're going to have a good debate and a thoughtful debate. And I think the record of the premier, uh, the way he approaches things, which is to uh, come with them with strong convictions, but to listen to people, is the right approach for these times. And you see it reflected in, uh, in what's been announced by the government, put forward by the government, and what he'll put forward in the campaign. What does campaigning look like right now? And he's phoning a lot of people, uh, just like this, uh, uh, because uh, and contacting them on social media and so on. Because some uh, the kind of face-to-face campaign that I love. I mean, what I typically do in a campaign, Simi, is uh, I go outside for about sixty days in a row, and I try and knock on every door in the constituency. Yeah. Right. That's what I typically do, and I won't be doing that this time. So we have to find other ways to reach people. And uh, I have a lot of faith in people in BC. Uh, they, this is a really important decision for them, and uh, and it's who leads us during this very difficult time, not just for our healthcare system, but for our economy. And uh, I think of those people uh, every day. Every day since uh, the pandemic started, I end my day by calling my constituents, seeing how they're doing, seeing how they're responding to what we're saying. And I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Do you understand the criticisms, though, that are being directed at your party about calling this election now when people feel like it could have waited? Uh, I, I do I do understand people's anxieties about COVID-19. I have those anxieties. But I think we can do this. We can do this safely. We're going to be dealing with COVID-19 for years. There was going to be a COVID-19 election. And I think uh, the Premier decided uh, rightly that this was the time to have it. And so uh, I understand the criticism and the other parties are making that criticism. But I think what I want to focus on are the things that uh, are important for the next four years. You know, when I became Minister of Health, 25,000 out of 30,000 seniors in long-term care were, had below standard staffing levels. And we've changed that. And we can't go back. And so our, our approach, which is you've seen in both the implementation of a single-site order, but also to improve seniors' care, working with everybody, not criticizing everybody, not making it public versus private, but working with everybody, I think is the right approach. And we need uh, to continue to do that, not just in the next days and weeks, but in the next years. And uh, I hope people will see that. I think they will. And uh, this is the same on surgeries and all the other issues that are at the heart of what we've been trying to do to improve public health care. What would you like to see as a priority then for the next couple of years? What would you like to see a government focus on? I think in health care, improving uh, access and primary care in the community. I think uh, continuing to reduce surgeries. We're increasing this year in a pandemic our operating time by 16%. It's an extraordinary feat by everybody in the healthcare system. We want to need an economic plan that supports people in difficult times, allows them uh, opportunities, like, for example, the 7,000 jobs we're creating in healthcare, which will help keep people uh, safe and well and give people opportunities uh, for family-supporting jobs. I think those are the kind of things uh, I think the election's about. And I'm, I'm very proud of our effort over three years. I think the Premier, who I've known for a very long time, as you know, is a very good man. And I think people have seen that. Uh, not sometimes in politics, it doesn't shine through. Well, it shines through with the premier, and he's shown that every day that he's been premier. I'm, I'm very proud of what he's done, and very proud of him. And I think, uh, I think he's the kind of leader to take us through what's going to be a difficult four years. Mr. Dix, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you very much, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Adrian Dix, NDP MLA, of course, still doing his work as health minister, as you heard him say, just not front and center, particularly for those briefings. And that was a big concern I think a lot of us genuinely had is, well, who's looking after stuff uh, if, you know, everybody is hitting the campaign trail right now? We are in a very important time.